Bobby Jean Johnson was given up for adoption at birth and later molested while she was in foster care. She ran away from that horrible situation and tried to survive as a sex worker on the streets of New Orleans. In 1977, an antiquities dealer named Arthur Sampson was found dead at his St. Charles Avenue shop. He had been shot once in the stomach with a 32 caliber bullet and stabbed over 100 times. The store was ransacked and the safe was missing about $2,000. A month after the murder, Bobby Jean was riding in what she did not know at the time was a stolen car with two men. When they were pulled over by the police for a traffic violation, one of the men stashed a knife and a 32 caliber revolver in Bobby Jean's purse. At 18 years old, Bobby Jean Johnson was brought in for a violent interrogation that would change the course of her already tragic and vulnerable life. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today I have a guest who is um, one of the most extraordinary people with one of the most insane stories that I've ever heard. And she's also just a beautiful, beautiful person. Um, so Bobby Jean Johnson, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. As I always say, I'm, I'm sorry you're here, but I'm glad you're here. Yeah. And everyone will find out why. Um, and with her is Kat Forrester, who is the Communications Director for the Innocence Project of New Orleans, also known as IPNO. And Kat, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So Bobby Jean was freed from prison 2018 after serving 41 years in prison for a crime she didn't commit. And this case has so many of the hallmarks of the causes of wrongful convictions that you know, it's almost a clean sweep, so to speak. I mean, there was misconduct, there was a false confession that you were tortured into making. Incompetent defense is not even, that's not even strong enough of a word. And we're going to get into that, all of that. But we're talking about the murder of Arthur Sampson, yeah. right? And this is an extremely violent crime. This was a white man who was an antiquities dealer in New Orleans yeah. who was shot and stabbed a hundred times. I mean, yeah. that's a vicious, vicious crime. And just to paint a picture for people who are listening, how tall are you? I'm five feet tall. You're five feet tall and you're not a, a big one. I wasn't that big at the time. I was like 98 pounds, like, and I wore size zero pants. I could go get my clothes out the children's section. So the, the whole thing makes no sense just on a purely physical level. And Mr. Sampson, I mean, nobody deserves to die like he did, but he was a sort of a dicey character anyway, right? He was known for bringing sex workers to his home, which is one of the reasons why the logical suspect would have been this woman who was a sex worker, who was the last person to see him alive. Yeah, he, she was the last person he was seen with by anyone. Right. So usually, you know, we all watch those crime shows on TV. You know, you go down that path, at least take a look, you know, but that's not what happened. Um, what year was this, Bobby? Jean? 1977. You were an 18-year-old girl yeah. at the time. So what was going on? You were living in New Orleans at the time? Yeah. And I was like on drugs and stuff. Right. And, um, so one night we was riding in a car. It was me and two other dudes who were riding in the car. And the cops, the police stopped us for a traffic violation. Were, and, you, were um, you driving? No, I wasn't driving. All right. And at the time when the police stopped us, the, one of the dudes that was in the car with me threw the knife in him gun in my purse and so because I know I didn't have no knife and gun in my purse. 
So when the police pulled all my stuff out of my person, he said, oh, we got a knife and a gun. I said, that is not for me. But um, they took us to homicide um, division and they put us in different rooms and kept questioning us and questioning. And I kept telling them, I don't know nothing about it. I don't even know where this place is at. And I heard of this man. And um, so one of the dudes, the dude that put the gun in the knife, did make a statement and said, I, when y'all stop this, I put that knife in that gun in Bobby Jeans. That's not hers. I did that. And he made a statement. They just ignored the statement. I mean, Kat, do you think they knew at the time that they had the wrong person, but they just wanted to clean up the case and that was what was really going on? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I think they had a pretty viable suspect and they didn't follow any of the leads in that other suspect's case. Um, and I think that so often, particularly, you know, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s in New Orleans, um, particularly with black folks, I think that they, you know, the cops got tunnel vision and, you know, when they found somebody and it seemed easy enough to pin it on that person, you know, even if all the evidence in the world pointed to someone else so often, they just got tunnel vision and um, focused on one person and, you know, forced their theory of the case to fit to that person. So they knew they knew that uh, this guy had come forward who admitted that he had a classy guy, by the way, it's a cop's coming. He's putting his his knife and his gun mm -hmm. in your purse. Yeah. I mean, that's a hell of a thing. And when you were arrested, and if you're okay even talking about it, I, I mean, what I've read about the interrogation that you went through, this is like something out of a, you know, a bad movie or out of a torture that you read about in, in a foreign country or Abu Ghraib, you know, something like that. Um, but, I mean, you went to the police station, and what yeah, happened? And then they put us in separate rooms, and um, they kept throwing pictures in front of me, and um, they say, this is him, this is him. I said, well, I've never seen that man before. The dead guy? Yeah, the dead man, Arthur Sampson. And then um, one hit me in my face. He said, no, let's take her to the other room. So when they took me to the other room, they still was asking me. So when I kept saying, I don't know, I can't tell you nothing, I don't know, he said, oh, you going to know, and he called me a black bee. And he put my hand, got me to the back behind this, like, wooden chair and put a plastic bag over my head. The chair fell backwards, and they started kicking me in my ribs and all over and hit me. And he kept saying, Black B, yeah, you're going to tell us because we know you know. We know you know. He said, because, let me tell you, he said, a number of police officers in this in this station right here, and we could kill you, and your family would never know nothing about you. So I'm scared to death. And so he said, come on, we're going back in there by the time. He said, you're going to put on, and if you don't, you'll get some more. And I was scared to death. I was crying and everything. I had five police officers standing up behind me and one sitting down who had the tape recorder. And um, he said, now you ready? I said, I, ain't, I don't know. Now he said, he turned the tape off and he said, you're going to repeat what I say. He turned the tape recorder off? Yeah, and told me that. So I was so scared. I did everything they was telling me to put on tape, I put on tape. But it was a lie. I did it because I was scared. Well, yeah, you had a very good reason to be scared. I mean, these and people And I was were... hurting everywhere. And even after the chair fell backwards, they was kicking me in my ribs and everything. It was horrible. And Jason, I just wanted to say that, like, the world had not been kind to Bobby Jean before this all happened. You know, she'd had a really tough up upbringing, and it makes so much sense that she would do anything to kind of survive, right, this this brutal police interrogation and beating. Thank you, Bobby Jean. Um, yeah, I just feel like the world had not been kind to her, had not offered her a lot of hope. Um, and I, you know, I think 
because I was, I was given away when my mama had me. And I had to go on like that. It was like I was scared the whole world on my shoulders. So I just got out there and I just wanted somebody to love me and I just wanted to be accepted and stuff. So whatever it took for me to do that, I did it. Yeah, and she was a, she was a young a young girl, as you keep kind of pointing out, you know, who was doing the best she could with what she had. Um, and then and then this thing happened to her, right? Yeah. Then this thing happened. This is, you know, there's been too many of these cases where we've learned that the officers have threatened to kill the person unless they confess. Johnny Hincapier is one, Daniel Villegas in Texas. There's too many of these. And, you know, Johnny says to me, he was on the podcast, and, and he said, um, people ask me, why would I confess? And he was 18 like you yeah. were. And uh, he says, why wouldn't I confess? He goes, I wanted to live. You know, that's it, what I want to do. I just want, I want to live. I was a young girl. 18, you're really more of a child than a woman. I mean, at that point, you know, I mean, we know that the adolescent brain doesn't fully develop until you're 25. 25. And here you are, not just a young girl, but a little girl, right? Um, 98 pounds, like you said, in a room full of big, tough guys who you would want to think are going to protect you. Yep. Right. Um, and in fact, they're threatening in a very real way. Right. It's not like it doesn't sound like an empty threat when they're putting a plastic bag over no. your head and beating you and kicking you. I mean, so I don't think there's any question. And I think it's so important that you're here. And I really appreciate you. I know it's difficult for you. Yeah. I can see how difficult it is. But it's so important for the public to understand that these false confessions happen for a variety of reasons. Not everybody's tortured, but a mm -hmm. lot of people are psychologically coerced or they're tricked or they're, you know, confused. So, yeah, in your situation, I don't think anyone would probably behave any differently than you did. But then what a difficult thing to live with, too, because knowing as you're going to prison for the rest of your life that you are in a certain way responsible because you, you know, you admitted something that you didn't do. But the, but Kat, her confession didn't match the, the, the facts of the case anyway. No, she, I mean, she got a lot of, of it wrong. Um I mean, she didn't get much of it right, actually. And that's also a typical thing in these false confession cases. After torturing her for hours, the police were able to extract the taped confession that was riddled with inconsistencies. According to that false confession, Bobby Jean and a woman named Kimberly Legon had met Samson in the French Quarter. Legon solicited him for sex. Then when he brought them back to his store, and again, back to the false narrative that she created just to make the torture stop, she said Bobby herself shot him once in the chest and once in the head, and then her friend Legon stabbed him over 100 times. Then they robbed his store and sped off in a stolen Pontiac Grand Prix. Now for the actual facts. Arthur Sampson was shot only once in the stomach. Bobby Jean described Sampson as being 20 years younger and a half foot taller than he was. And lastly, the Pontiac Grand Prix would not have made a good getaway car as it was not stolen until hours after the murder. The man who had stashed the 32 caliber revolver and knife in her purse had made a statement admitting to just that, but that fact was inconvenient to the prosecution's narrative and was therefore hidden from the defense. All of this could have been brought up during trial if Bobby Jean had adequate counsel. However, with no family and no backup whatsoever, Bobby Jean didn't have a chance in hell. Now you're taken to jail. Yeah. How long did you have to wait for your trial? 18 months. 18 months in jail. Yeah. And I know how bad that must have been because 
jails, I mean, anywhere are terrible, but in New Orleans, um, it, it's, yes. it's infamous. It is, yeah. Your trial was, um, it was like a combination of a bad dream and a bad joke. It was. Because yeah. the people who were supposed to be defending you did nothing of the sort. Yeah. And can you talk about that? Yeah, I can. Um, during my trial, um, my lawyer wouldn't let me get on the stand and talk in my own defense. He fell asleep through the trial. Um, Your lawyer was asleep during the trial? Yeah, he fell asleep during the trial. I had to wake him up. And um, he didn't do no opening um, statements. No opening statements? No, and no closing statements. And no closing statements. And um, one of the jurors stood up and say, told the judge, I cannot give Ms. Johnson a fair trial because I had a relationship with this man. The judge said, be seated. With the victim? Yeah, and he, um, and oh. now I know because when I was in prison, I took paralegal and I graduated from it. But my lawyer should have called a mistrial when that juror stood up, and he didn't say not a word. And the judge said, just let's, let's please proceed. I mean, I've, I've been doing this work for over 25 years, and I've heard a lot of stories. I've never heard that before. I mean, I've heard stories of jurors that have, but I never heard a juror actually stand up and yes, admit to she, it. she raised her hand and she said, Your Honor, how can I get this lady a fair trial? Because I had a relationship with Mr. Sampson. And so your lawyer was asleep. Uh, you're waking him up. He made no opening statement. He made no closing statement. No. And he didn't object. To that lady. He didn't to call the, up a mistrial. Didn't call a mistrial. He made one objection throughout the trial to the admission of a photograph. Um, he asked a total of eight cross-examination questions, the majority of which dealt with the ballistics of the gun. No opening and no closing, and he presented no case theory. He essentially did nothing except... Take a nap and sit there. Yeah. I mean, he didn't defend you so much as process you, mm. right? Even when I was in jail. When they appointed him to me, he never came see me. Only time I seen him was in, at court. And sometimes they would have court dates for me, but he wouldn't de- be there, so they would postpone it to another day. Oh, so that's why it took 18 months to get to trial? Yeah. Because he wouldn't show up? He wouldn't show up, yeah. Did at any point, did you request a different lawyer? Did you even know that you could I didn't know. Him? I was young and I didn't know. Right. And you probably, I mean, I would think in that situation. I knew nothing about the law. Right. And I would think, again, in that situation that you would be worried if you did request one, then you're going to upset the only guy who's on your side right now. Yeah. Did you have any family in the courtroom with you or anything like that? No. Nobody, just all alone? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Took them less than an hour to come back with a guilty verdict. Yeah. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule, at your own pace, and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com 
slash wrongful. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best. And then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. So when I got to prison, at first I wasn't because I was angry. I was angry and I was hurt. That's when I was I started fighting and all this. It didn't matter no more because I had a It was like, well, Bob Jean, you got a life sentence now. It's nothing you could do. You just want to die in this prison. But then I started praying and praying and praying. And when the last fight I had, I remember I was in that cell. I just fell to my knees and I said, God, just take my life. I'm, I'm tired of living like this. Take my life and do what you want to do with it. And from that day to this one, I ain't been the same. I grew up. I got more mature. And I did everything I could do. They was they was offering um, the GED. So I know I had been out of school a few months and stuff, and I got in this trouble because I know I was a smart girl. I had just I hadn't graduated. I dropped out at the 11th grade, and um, so I took the GED and I passed the GED. They was giving grants out for um, introduction to business, payroll accounting, and paralegal. First, I took the paralegal one, and I passed with a full kernel. 4.0. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And um, I studied hard. Oh, I studied hard because I wanted it. And I wanted. I did everything I could to rehabilitate myself in every kind of way. It was nothing I didn't do positive in jail. Now, I had fights in jail because I was small and they thought I was scared of them, but I wasn't. And I had fights with quite a few people, but I, I, I grew and I matured. I did everything I know to do right. I was a law clerk and all this in the prison. When I got into the uh, the law library, I started writing to everybody to try to help me. One day, my sister said, just send me all your papers. I'm a British Innocent Project. And when I sent them all to her, they, they got them, and they started working on my case immediately. Every two weeks, they would be up there to see me. 
and they tell me how the case was going or whatever. And then the day of, I went to court on the 7th. I didn't even know I had a court order the day of. They said, they said, Bobby Jean Johnson, get ready, you got a court trip. I said, a court trip? I don't, y'all have never taken me back to court. So I didn't know what was going on. So I said, okay, and when I got dressed, they brought me to the courthouse, and all my all them was in the courtroom for me. All the lawyers? Yes. But all my lawyers walked up with me to the podium when I had to do the plea and everything. For many long years, both the Promise of Justice Initiative and the Innocence Project of New Orleans worked tirelessly on Bobby Jean's case, investigating leads, studying the evidence, and identifying the inconsistencies in her violently coerced false confession to eventually force the district attorney's office to offer a plea deal. The deal was this. Her first-degree murder conviction and life sentence would be vacated, but Bobby Jean had to plead guilty to manslaughter and armed robbery in order to be resentenced to time served. Her attorneys also had to drop any claims that the DA's office did not turn over exculpatory evidence. This was not the outcome that they or anyone who cared about Bobby Jean had hoped for, but it was the only one that would set her free. It's really sort of the last miserable um, aspect of this case is the fact that even after all these years and even after it's been proven that you had nothing to do with this, they still wouldn't admit their mistake, right? Because they wanted to maintain the conviction. They want to make sure you didn't get anything for it. So the DA's office in New Orleans forced you to take a plea um, just to sort of... So I could be free. That was the only way he said, either you take this plea or you stay in prison. Right. And I think think anybody would do what you did. And and Kat, I want you to jump in here anytime because... I know you're intimately familiar with this case, and I know how proud you are of the work that, and as I am, as a supporter of Innocence Project New Orleans, I'm so proud of the work that they did, and I'm so happy. I mean, I saw those pictures when, and I posted on my Instagram, um, which is at it's Jason Flom, as people know, but I posted the pictures of Bobby Jean walking out of prison that day, and I just, my heart was breaking or, 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 or floating. I was breaking, my heart was breaking, and my, I was floating <laughs> in the air, and it was a whole crazy thing. Can you shine some light on this, Kat? Because this this case is bizarre even by our standards. Yeah, absolutely. So it was a case that we worked on for for several years. Um, one of the attorneys in our office, Sherelle Arnold, worked on it for a long time. And it ended up being um, the Promise of Justice Initiative, an incredible organization in New Orleans who ended up freeing Bobby Jean and walking her out of prison. But we were there because she was, you know, the first female client who we'd really worked on her case for, for, for a long time and had a really good lead. And, and, and part of that is because as you know, Jason, I'm sure, you know, women aren't often sentenced to, to life in prison or long prison sentences, which is what Ipno does is free innocent life sentence prisoners. Um, and, and women so often are caught up in things that men do right there, or they harm or kill their domestic abusers. Um, and so this was, you know, really exciting for us, I think, because it was the first time that we'd worked with a woman um, for a number of years. Um, and of course, Bobby Jean is just incredible. And, you know, I think having her come home, um, I actually came and hung out with her in Atlanta when she got home and we went to the aquarium and um, started learning how to use a cell phone. As, as I think of, we showed you some pictures and um, it was a really incredible moment. I, you know, can't imagine being incarcerated for 41 years. No, I mean, when you put that in context, that's, I mean, you were only 18 at the time. So that's 
twice as long as you had been alive, plus another five years. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, it's, it's impossible, I think, for anybody to comprehend who hasn't been through it. Jesus, who was president when you went to prison? I don't remember. I don't know. We have to look that up. <laughs> 77. Jimmy Carter was president. Oh, okay. That's... <laughs> God. Yeah. I mean... That's a long time. Most of the people who are listening to the show weren't born yet. Um, and everything was different. Um, and then you come out into a world where everybody's walking around, typing on their phones, going everywhere. Like, there's just... Everything is different. When I had my first phone in my hand, I was like, oh, my God, cat!" <laughs> she had to show me everything, how to turn it on and everything. First but thing she wanted was an Instagram account. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> what, is your, what is your Instagram account? I don't know. She doesn't know. Bobby Jean 2018. So you walk out. I mean, what a, what a difference. You, you go in as a scared, brutalized, young 19... 19- 20-year-old woman by the time, well, 18 when you went to jail, um, and you come out as a, an accomplished, mature, 59-year-old woman, you walk out into a world that looks almost nothing like it did when you went in. Because New Orleans don't look nothing like it did when I went in. I mean... I almost forgot the names of the streets. That's how different it looked to me. Yeah. And I had five, five of my lawyers with me, and it was just, I don't know, it was a feeling I never had before. I used to pray every night, God, you my only witness, and you know I didn't kill nobody. Just open these doors for you and help me. Every night I prayed that in my room. It was so hard for me. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Here we are at the Innocence Network conference. By the way, how about this conference, Bobby? I love it. It's amazing, right? Yes, it's amazing. I love it. Yeah, so we're here at the Innocence Network conference with about 200 exonerees and uh, 600 um, people, activists, social workers, um, civilians who want to get involved. Um, Two of them are in the room with us right now. Um, We have uh, lawyers here. We have uh, experts on everything from you know, false confessions to uh, you name it. And uh, it's an awesome, awesome thing. I mean, people are connecting and, and uh, strategizing and coming up with best practices and helping each other. And yeah, I mean, we have, we have what, what, 35 new exonerees here that were on stage mm-hmm. last night yeah. singing and dancing. And it was just a crazy scene, mm-hmm. man. It was amazing, including you. Yeah, well. <laughs> Yeah, I saw you up there. <laughs> How'd it feel to be up there, Bobby Jean? It, was, it felt good. Yeah. It felt good. For you to connect with the other exonerees, what is that experience like? It's just like, because I, I just thought, I said, I know there ain't that many people that have false convictions, and, and it made me feel good to know that. I, was, I, was, I wasn't the only one. 
Oh, no, hell no. But I didn't know at the time, but it really felt good. And to know how much love they showed, we showed each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we ain't done yet. <laughs> We're going to be loving on you for the, well, for the rest of the time. But especially the last, next 24 hours that we're all going to be here together. It's going to be amazing. Um, and I know that people are, are so glad that you're it's here. It's amazing. It's amazing, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm so honored to be here and, and be a part of this movement. Um, I, I will tell anybody who's listening that, um, you know, I call it selfish altruism because I consider it a privilege and an honor to get to be around people like yourself. And to be able to make some small difference is... Uh, you know, it's the most rewarding thing in my life. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm a father and that's a tremendously important thing to me. But beyond yeah. that, it's the most important work that I can imagine being involved with. And you're living proof of it. And, and here we are celebrating you and celebrating freedom and yeah. working on getting the next people out. And, and so now you're living in Georgia. Yeah, I live in Georgia. Decatur. Yes. And... What gives you joy now? Do you have any joy in your life now? I have plenty of joy in my life now because it's like living where I live, I can come and go as I please. Anybody could come get me and like take me wherever they want to take me. Like if they want to take me out there or whatever, I can do it. And they have a lot of activities because of my age. Uh, they have a lot of activities for us, and I always attended. They have church service I always attended, and they treat me good. And what is it that you do once a month, Bobby Jean? Oh, I go to Georgia's Innocent Project. I'm a, I'm a member of the Georgia's Innocent Project. And I never miss a meeting. I'm always there. Yeah, they've really lovingly taken her into the exonerate meetings that happen once a month there. So she gets to hang out with other wrongfully incarcerated people who live in Georgia. Yeah. I see you got the shirt on. Georgia, <laughs> Georgia Innocent Project. They say, Bobby, do you go wear the Georgia Innocent Project shirt? I say, yeah, I don't have one for all. If no. So I wear the Georgia one. <laughs> I need to get you a justice shirt. I know. Yeah. I don't have a justice shirt. I need me one. I think we can arrange that. I think so. Kat, you got that one? I got it. Okay, perfect. Teamwork makes the dream work. Um, so this is the part of the show that is my favorite part because this is the part of the show where I get to, first of all, I thank you. You're welcome. Um, I thank you for having me. Bobby Jean Johnson and Kat Forrester, thank you for coming and and sharing, especially you, Bobby, obviously, uh, Bobby Jean, for I know how difficult it is to talk about these things, and it's so important that you're here. Um, so, you know, thank you on behalf of me and all my listeners and everybody in the Innocence They're Network. Welcome. And then this is the part where I get to stop talking, and um, I, I turn it over to you two fabulous ladies for final closing thoughts. Um, and I think we should we should finish with you, Bobby, because um, I want to hear anything you have to say, any anything at all about any subject. But first, Kat, what what are your closing thoughts? I'm just so glad that we helped get her home. And I, I was thinking about it because we were at the aquarium last night for the uh, the Innocence Network dinner, and uh, we went to the aquarium right after she got out, and to see the joy on her face, you know, at like you know, seeing very cool fish um, was just unparalleled. Um, and I'm just so glad to have been able to experience that with her and to see, you know, how many new things she gets to explore in this life now that she's a free, a free woman. 
Yeah, it was amazing to me because um, the aquarium I would always see that they showed on TV. I used to say, I want to go there. I want to go there. So when Kat had me, she said, you want to go to the aquarium? And when she did it, it was like a joy, a light of joy just jumped on my face. I said, yeah, I want to go. I want to go, Kat. I want to go see him. And when I came seeing it, it was so beautiful. I just, it was so amazing out here. But Kat led me all the way through. And she was there. Ipno has been there for me. I could call them at any given time or whenever, and if it's a problem I have, they would do their best to fix it. Or if I like, I, I, sometimes I used to get depressed and stuff, and I used to call them and, and talk. And Angelique has been marvelous. Oh my gosh, she has been great. She, um, our client services specialist. Yeah, she has been great, no matter what. If she can't call me back at the time, she'll text me back and say, I'll call you in a few minutes, just hold on. And, um, but it has been great, and it's a, and I'm happy to be home. I'm happy. I'm happy. More happy now than I ever been in my life. I didn't. I never knew so much love and stuff. But now I do, and it's it's great. It's just that they took a lot away from me. They took everything away from me for nothing. For something I didn't even do. I lost everything. All my youth was gone. And I just want to thank you, Jason, for having me. Well, we're going to be here for you, too. Um, you have a whole bit new family now. Yeah. you got 800 family members <laughs> here now. And you got a lot more that are listening to the show. And so um, you're, you're a brave and strong and amazing woman. And... Um, we're going to support you in every way we can. So, um, so again, thank you for being here. Thanks again for listening. Um, I'm going to go try to recover. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we'll see you next week on Wrongful Conviction. I have some devastating news to share. Um, Bobby Jean Johnson who I recorded this amazing, haunting episode with back in April at the Innocence Network conference, passed away. Um, it was unexpected. I'm no doctor, but I can say that she died of the abuse and neglect that she suffered at the hands of the state of Louisiana during her 41 years of wrongful incarceration. Bobby was an angel on earth. She was a, a, just a beautiful, damaged soul who wanted nothing but to be loved and to help others. And she was out less than 18 months when she died. And I bring that up because it's a sort of a hidden and horrible truth. I don't know the statistics nationally, but in the state of Louisiana, approximately 20% of exonerees die within 18 months of their release from prison. It's really hard for me to process this one. We were planning uh, Bobby's birthday party when we got the news. She had called me and said that, she called me Mr. J, she called me, she called me, she says, Mr. J, she goes, uh, you know, uh, my birthday's coming up. And she said, in her little voice, cause you know, she's only about 90 something pounds. And she said, uh, you know, I've never had a happy birthday. And you know, that really just messed my head up as you can imagine. So we, we began uh, uh, planning Myself, uh, Stacy Ryan, who mentored her, Hero the Band, um, a wonderful rock and roll band that I work with from Atlanta. We all were putting our resources together and planning a big, beautiful 
birthday uh, celebration for her in Atlanta. And, um, you know, just a week before it was supposed to happen, we got the news that she was gone. So, um, Bobby Jean, you're gone, but never forgotten. Rest in power. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Right now, until December 31st, donations made to Innocence Project New Orleans in Bobby Jean Johnson's name will be matched dollar for dollar. Go to ip-no.org to donate before this special matching period ends. That's ip-no.org. You can find the link as well as a mailing address in this episode's description. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is engineered, produced, and edited by me, Connor Hall, and Kevin Wirtis. The music is by Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.